This is New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. If you're enjoying this podcast, the best thing you can do for this show is to tell somebody else about it. Help spread the word. And take a moment to rate and review us on your podcasting app. When I had the chance to talk with cellist Carlos Rodriguez, a founding member of the Catalyst Quartet, he had so many fascinating stories that I couldn't even begin to unearth in my research. So I hope that you'll stick around and listen to this whole conversation as we learn about Volume 3 of the recording Uncovered on New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher. Good morning, Carlos. Thank you for getting up early to have this conversation with me. Good morning. My pleasure. I have not had the pleasure yet of talking with you. I've talked to Paul a couple of times about your earlier Uncovered series, so I'm excited to talk to you. I noticed that you seem to have a Florida connection. You've spent a lot of time down in Florida. We used to have a station down there, Classical South Florida, so we had a relationship with the Florida Grand Opera, where you were the principal cellist for a while, I know. That's right. I'm actually originally from Miami, Florida. That's where I grew up. Well, I wanted to just start off by getting to know you a little bit, and then we'll dive into Volume 3 of Uncovered. Tell me a little bit about you and how the cello became your instrument of choice. Oh, my goodness. Well, as you mentioned, um, I'm originally from Miami, Florida. I had been going to a lot of concerts and had been exposed um, to a lot of different kinds of music, Broadway musicals, symphony orchestras, uh, solo classical music recitals, all sorts of things as a kid growing up. And so I wanted to be with music. I wanted something to do with music. And I thought, oh, maybe the violin is going to be a thing that I'd be interested in. So it took a while to convince or I guess not to convince, but for me to get to the local community music school with my mom. And they recommended that you sit in on a lesson before you decide to choose an instrument or a teacher. And the violin teacher wasn't there when we got there. And the lady at the front desk, her name was Maritza. She said, my son plays the cello and I think you should play the cello too. I had no idea what a cello was. The cello teacher was there and I was sort of like, it took so long to get here. If I say no right now, I'm not, we're not coming back. So um, that's how the cello came to be. Luckily, I fell into the hands of a wonderful cello teacher named Barbara Corsillo, who had just uh, finished up degrees at Juilliard and randomly moved down to Miami for uh, her husband. So it was a happy thing. And how old were you at that point? I was around seven years old. Oh, wow. That's pretty small to be picking up the cello. Well, you were just 13 years old when you had your orchestral debut with the New World Symphony. And was that with Michael Tilson Thomas at the helm? It was not. It was with a guest conductor. But it was lovely to just recently spend a whole week at the New World Symphony doing an educational residency and a performance residency with the fellows there. And I'm actually right now a block away from Davies Hall in San Francisco, where um, he's made his home for so many years. So the creation of the New World Symphony in Miami when I was growing up and Michael Tilson Thomas's work had a 
a great impact on on me through access and inspiration, really. You know, one of the other things that I noticed about you is you have a real passion for dance, and you've been involved with a lot of different dance ensembles. Can you talk a little bit about that and the work that you've done with different dance groups? Yeah, I think there's something about live music with dance that is really interesting. Because one of the foundations of music and what we do is rhythm. And rhythm and gesture, I would say. And with dance, their rhythm is directly connected to the music that we play. Yet their physical bodies have to move through space in a way that navigates um, the ground and gravity. And so there is an inevitable pace, an inevitable trajectory that they work with when it comes to how they respond to the music that we're playing or that one is playing. And so I find it really interesting. And I find also the sense of making rhythm a sort of body experience, like a whole body experience, really fascinating and important because oftentimes people think of rhythm as a cerebral experience when I think that actually it's a physical experience. Does that impact you as you're playing? I mean, in a physical way? Oh, yeah. I mean, you can see the way some choreographers have interpreted music um, and it totally unlocks a different version of what you thought that that piece was about. And there have been a number of of uh, new commissions of ballets or dances that I've been a part of that I had a whole different story about this piece in my head. And then the choreographer brings this entirely different experience. And it's just cool how music can respond in different ways to different people. And I think without the built-in narrative of some classical music, um, like just say even music of Bach or Haydn or something like that, it sort of like can go in any direction. Even new mu- new music. I was part of a dance production of a piece by Kevin Putz, and it was t- a totally different thing than I had envisioned when I actually saw the thing being danced in front of me. Carlos, you are a founding member of the Catalyst Quartet. What does that mean to you to be a founding member of this ensemble? Oh, it's a, it means it's been a long time. <laughs> it means that I can personally remember every single performance that the ensemble has given. It comes with a mantle of responsibility and also ownership and um, pride for the work that we've done and are doing, but also, you know, the weight of, of what that sort of means. Um, carrying the torch since the beginning. <laughs> there have been a lot of, you know, interesting times in the group and and experiences and travels. And it's a very lucky thing to be a founding member of a group. But, you know, the fortitude with, with what you need to maintain everything, it's, it's a lot of work sometimes. Why is this group important to you? I mean, you've been together, I'm trying to remember, is it like a dozen years? Yeah. I think because part of our ethos is like reimagining and redefining the classical music experience and the string quartet. And that can mean a lot of different things. For us, it's a lot about invigorating the repertoire with new commissions or rediscovering previously forgotten works 
or getting into communities where maybe classical music isn't so prevalent or working with a wide variety of children or expanding the audience reach to include more people in various communities where they maybe wouldn't necessarily go to a classical music concert. But at the end of the day, for me, the Catalyst Quartet is important because we're trying to do something that matters to people. And we're trying to make classical music, new music, art music, Western art music, whatever you want to call it, and specifically through the string quartet in this old form, something that's relevant and important to people for a variety of reasons, whatever they may be to those individuals and those communities, however they can come to us or however we can connect with each other, that what we're doing resonates with people. The Catalyst Quartet has been working on a multi-volume anthology of string quartet works by historically important Black composers, and you're releasing the third volume now. And this one features works by George Walker, Coleridge Taylor Perkinson, and William Grant Still. Tell me about the connection of these composers. Why feature these three composers on the same recording? Well, it's a practical thing, and it's also a happy accident. The first two volumes, one featuring the music of Samuel Coleridge-Taylor and the other the music of uh, Florence B. Price, they have larger catalogs of music. They have more works. Uh, the Florence Price Volume 2 uncovered is, you know, if you're thinking of CD length, uh, it would technically be like two discs set, as we used to say. <laughs> But these composers only have one or two works. And so to put them together is kind of a nice way to put a whole album out. But also their music is related in a really beautiful way with one of the pieces being called the Lyric Quartet, which is William Grant Still, but also George Walker's quartet is referred to as lyric quartet, or at least his middle movement for sure has been published as the lyric for strings. So there's a connection there. Also, William Grant still being the dean of all great American music, um, there is a jazz age um, reference in that when you say American music. And Perkinson definitely has been inspired, if not crossed the line, into jazz age harmony for sure. And so there is a, a wonderful connection with these two giants of the 20th century, three giants of the 20th century. This also is a digital-only release, is that right? Yes. The earlier, earlier two are also digital-only. Is there a reason why you're doing that? Is it, is There's it a- an environmental reason. It's also a financial reason. These albums are extremely expensive to produce, and they are self-produced. I should say self-funded. And with lots of help from donors and grants and all of that stuff. But the printing of CDs is very expensive. And these days, where does one buy CDs? Primarily, maybe only at our concerts. And those sales don't warrant pressing, you know, 10,000 CDs. Because... We don't have, say, record stores anymore where you can go in and, and 
buy albums and stuff like that. I think what would be interesting is to press some vinyl of these uncovered albums when they are all complete as just a sort of physical manifestation of all of this work. But I do think we're moving in a different direction when it comes to digital music and digital access. And how many volumes are you hoping to create as part of this series? Well, the inception of the series, which um, it started in 2018, we thought it was going to be one album. We thought, oh, we know this piece, we know that piece, they're great, we have to record them, this only makes sense. And then luckily we called the thing Uncovered because more and more music started to be uncovered and it turned into this multi-volume recording project. And in the end, I think it will probably be four volumes. So no spoiler alerts, but there's going to probably be another one. Well, let's talk about what's on this one. Um, let's start with the George Walker lyric quartet. This was his first major composition, and he finished it while he was still a student studying in France. What is it about this work that makes it so significant for this composer? Well, I think it's very personal for him. He dedicated it to his grandmother. And so that in- inevitably makes something a-, a personal thing. I think it's an important piece for him specifically, and I'll mention this as a personal connection that we have to the quartet. Uh, it's one of the pieces that we've played for the longest. The middle movement, as I spoke of earlier, has been published as a standalone work called Lyric for Strength. It's beautiful. So a lot of people play it that way, not even knowing maybe that it's a whole string quartet, much like Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings, and that being the slow moment of his one and only string quartet. So we were in California playing a series of concerts. The Barber Quartet was on the program, and so was George Walker's Lyric for Strings. Now, we knew it was a whole string quartet. It's not that we didn't know that, but programmatically it worked this way to be you know, a good idea and a good fit. So... We're driving from concert to concert on a tour, and we get alerted to actually a tweet from George Walker. He must have been well into his 80s at that point. And he was sort of like, why does nobody play my whole quartet? Everyone only plays this lyric for strings, this slow movement. Are they not up to the challenge of of the outer two movements of my string quartet? It's really a shame or something, you know, something like that. And so we thought, oh, wow, that's, first of all, good for him for getting on Twitter at his age. But also that he knew that this was a thing, that people weren't playing this entire work. And so I wish that he were still with us, but finally this album comes out of us playing his entire string quartet. And I think the fact that he even, like 
wanted to say anything about it on Twitter means that the piece is important to him. And we've kind of gotten as much as we can into the George Walker String Quartet. Um, and happily, because it's a beautiful, stunning work. Wow, that is a fabulous story. Thank you for sharing that. When Coleridge Taylor Perkinson finished his string quartet number one, Calvary, in 1956, he was about the same age that Walker was when he finished his lyric quartet. Can you talk a little bit about this piece, if you would, please? Well, I'll say that the thing about this piece is that it is just dynamic. It's one of the most action-packed, condensed, rhythmically intricate, harmonically developed pieces that I think the quartet's played in recent memory. For us, the work is important because of our personal connection to Perkinson himself through one of our early mentors, Sanford Allen. Sanford Allen is the first African-American member of the New York Philharmonic. He's a violinist, and he was hired by Leonard Bernstein. Sanford is directly responsible for commissioning most of the smaller chamber works and solo works for violin. It's most definitely from Perkinson. He called him Perky. And I just... Even their connection is so strong that if you Google... Perkinson, the image you get from Google Image is actually Sanford Allen, not Coachella Perkinson. Um, there are a couple of pictures of Perkinson, but not many. They're hard to find. And one of them is definitely Sanford. Um, so our personal connection to that work is important to me. Um, but the piece is, is just phenomenal. It really is. That work is called Calvary, and it's based loosely on the spiritual of the same name. What does he do with that spiritual in this piece? First of all, that spiritual is seminal for for most people that grew up hearing it. If you go on YouTube or something like that, there's so many profound recordings of that from even the 20s and 30s. Um, He takes kernels of... Calvary. I'm not really a singer, but he takes kernels of it and let's say little phrases from the song and embeds them and develops them much like Bach would a fugue. And while it's not necessarily a direct lift of the spiritual, as you will hear, let's say, in volume two of Florence Price's um, Folk Songs and Counterpoint. Mm-hmm. 
she actually has a Calvary movement also, which is kind of a direct lift of the of the song. This is just a few kernels of the melody, and definitely, at least the way we interpret it, the spirit of the song, which is heavy. It's a serious song about a serious sub subject. And so that essence is something that we infuse into the work. But, you know, there are three different ways to use a reference material like a spiritual, let's say. One is a direct lift of the piece. The other is sort of an arrangement where you embellish and expand upon. And then the third is kind of this way where you use kernels and sort of the vibe of the music as an inspiration. Perkinson had a diverse career, and he collaborated with jazz and some of the popular performers of his day, including... Marvin Gaye and Harry Belafonte. And I thought for sure that I was hearing some of those influences, especially in the final movement. Uh, <laughs> are you hearing that too, or am I just trying to find those influences? I mean, I love that you heard that. I think that's, I think that's great. Um, you spoke about dance earlier um, and my connection to dance. And, you know, Perkinson was the first music director of Dance Theater of Harlem also, which... I love because we actually, um, right before the pandemic started, celebrated the 50th anniversary of Dance Theater of Harlem with a new commission by touring around and playing various places, including the Kennedy Center, with Tanya Leone, who is one of their early music directors as well, and knew Perkinson quite well. You have such great stories. I mean, I dug and dug and didn't find any of this stuff, so I'm so <laughs> glad we're having this conversation. Yeah. William Grant Still is the senior composer on this recording. How did he become one of the most important composers in the history of the United States? I think because he's great. He's a wonderful musician. I think also because he was in a time when there could be a lot of firsts for him. He was the first composer to have an opera premiered um, on television. She was the first black conductor to conduct a major symphony orchestra. He was, there was like the first, first, lots of firsts for Dean William Grant still. But also I think that his music and his persona is very embedded into our American culture, not just musically. I think that his relationship with a lot of our, the literary geniuses of the day, Langston Hughes, James Baldwin, whoever you want to mention, I think that his connection to our American word, to our literature, and to our art scene, and I think that all also propelled his music into mattering to a larger sphere of people. His great genius, his ability to be at a time when things were new, like recordings and television and all of that stuff, and to have a lot of firsts there, and also his connection to arts at large in our country, I think these are some reasons why he's so important. His lyric quartet comes from his later period. Can you talk a little bit about that and what we're hearing? 
you can hear that it's a portrait of three friends and that actually the movement titles are like the quiet one, the jovial one and stuff like that. So there are these more personal connections to these movements. I like to think of them as these portrait of friends because that's such a beautiful thing to write a piece for the people close to you. And I think that um, the music definitely speaks more in that direction. Definitely has a bit more of that essence. And at least that's the way we've interpreted it. Do we know who those portraits are? Of which friends? No, we don't. Um, but I like, there's, one, there's one little kernel that sounds like a Suzuki song. And I like to think that person was a Suzuki teacher, but Suzuki method wasn't invented yet. <laughs> so as we're talking, I'm thinking about, you know, we're just talking about how wonderful these composers were and are. However, I don't think any of them were really acknowledged in their lifetime. Is that a safe thing to say, that they are now becoming uncovered? I think that some of these composers could have had more respect in there and more exposure in their lifetime. It's not really fair to say William Grant still is, we're uncovering him. He's a very important pillar in American music. Is he on the poster that you see in the classroom of the great composers that kids grow up looking at? No. Should he be? Yes. And is he and maybe will he be? Yes. You know, also George Walker... Pulitzer Prize winning um, composer, had every medal you could possibly have and every award for composition. So Perkinson, I think, maybe is the most underrepresented of these three as far as like accolades in their lifetime. But the reach of their music and the popularity of their music definitely has been lacking. And definitely the recordings of high quality of their work has been let's say, lacking, and the programming of their music has been lacking. So I would say this is a, a step in supporting their greatness because it's not like people don't know at least two of these three composers or they weren't recognized in their lifetimes. But this album, I hope, helps firm all of that reputation up a bit. Carlos, if someone is picking up this recording and discovering these composers for the first time, what is it you would tell them to encourage them to listen to it and explore it? I would just say, enjoy. I would say, think about how it makes you feel. I would say, when you're listening to it, listen for the colors of, of the harmonies. Listen for the rhythmic energy. I would say, listen for the lyricism. Obviously, the, the word lyric is so attached to some of these, to two of these pieces in particular. I would just say, enjoy, enjoy, because it's it's such a unique album, and this music together is is so unique that it, you can't go in with any pre preconception. You just just enjoy. 
And what about you, finally? What are you discovering about yourself as the Catalyst Quartet is putting this series together? I'm discovering that I can, I've, I'm a better researcher than I thought because there is a tremendous amount of research and scholarly work that goes into all of these albums and all of these interpretations. I am discovering hopefully more patience because this music takes time to unlock. It takes time to interpret and put together and rehearse and all of that. And also open-mindedness because this is music, all of these uncovered albums, it's music that you can't just come to with a, like a Brahms idea or a Mozart idea or a new music idea. It's sort of like uh, learning a sensibility of openness and sort of letting the music speak to you first before you put your ideas on the music that you already know through your tradition and your training. Like, I know how to play a phrase, like, when it says rubato or something like that. This music, I think, takes more objectivity and a little bit more um, openness. So I think open-mindedness and patience and are, are things that this music has taught me. But also, I've just constantly been struck by the the work itself and how specific it is and how it's sort of like but it's not like other things that you expect it's just lives in this in-between space and it's really interesting it's volume three in the multi-volume series uncovered with the catalyst quartet Thanks to cellist Carlos Rodriguez for his additional insight and to our producer Valerie Kaler. This is New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher. 